You are listening to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Uh, welcome to our OHBM Brain Mapping podcast. I'm your host, Peter Vanatini. Today, we're actually going to be talking about uh, something that I, I think is uh, a topic that's a lot of people aren't really aware of who do fMRI. And uh, it's basically uh, that, you know, we're using all these MR scanners and they're mostly, the scanners are actually there mostly for clinical applications for using just for MRI. And, and we've been benefiting tremendously from the fact that the, uh, that the area, the clinical market is, is so robust and MR scanners do an incredible job for imaging soft tissue in general. Uh, but at the same time, while we've been benefiting from it, we're also not really aware of, you know, how product development, product conception comes into play. And also uh, not aware of all the potential things that maybe MRI could do uh, uh, to potentially help fMRI. So uh, today I have um, three people uh, and we're really lucky to have, in my opinion, the, the two most important people, I believe, over the last 20 years, at least uh, with product development and interfacing with, uh, with the researchers who, who really wanna push the technology, uh, both one from GE and one from, from Siemens. Scott Hanks is retired, uh, uh, he was at GE, and Franz Schmidt is retired as well, and, and he was at Siemens. And we also have Ravi Mehta, and I'll, ta I'll talk about you know, their, their backgrounds in a second, but, and Ravi is sort of in some sense, uh, a counterpart in some sense to me, you know, we're both physicists. We both care about fMRI method development. And we both also work with the vendors uh, pretty intimately uh, at various times. So, you know, we also have our perspective. So I just want to start out with the statement that, and as I said before, fMRI is, is really unique because it is riding on the back of this, this robust clinical market. And this is maybe a debate that we can start right into. Uh, and this is, this is perfect because how much influence does fMRI, how much influence has, has it had on the product development from the vendors? I mean, Ravi thinks uh, that it was more influential potentially. And, and I actually, I, I think that it may have been, maybe the promise of fMRI may have been influential to some degree, but but I mean, you know, there's main, there's a couple primary products that are critical to fMRI. There's echoplanar imaging, which requires a lot of stability in the system. High field, you can go into three Tesla, then seven Tesla, and a few pulse sequences. Um, but F EPI is the is the bread and butter uh, that hasn't really changed a lot. I mean, of course, there's multiband and things like that, which again are developed for other other purposes. And I know for a fact that when I talk to vendors. And, and I, I don't really mind. I mean, I, it's, it's frustrating, but I, I totally get it. Uh, I talk to vendors and I'm saying, you know, it'd be great to have this, you know, you, for the last 20 years, I've been saying, you know, perfusion imaging um, or else um, it'd be great to have sort of an fMRI suite or it'd be great to have a local head grading coil just for functional MRI purposes. And, and all the, everyone, you know, they listen and, and they're, they, under, they get it, but they're like, well, you know, don't really want to invest resources in that right now, and and I get it. So and my so then that I come away with the feeling that that the vendors are their focus is obviously on you know 
what what builds their scanners and that's the clinical market. So, so, so my perspective, Peter, I think was that, um, and I think I agree with much of that, but I think that a, a lot of the things in the early days that we demanded of the vendors in terms of stability of clinical scanners, which weren't very stable, in terms of eddy currents, in terms of uh, gradient duty cycles, things like that were, uh, I think things that were very much motivated by fMRI, uh, they may have eventually actually been used much more so in, in the clinical market. But, you know, I, I feel, and, and I'd really be interested in, in Scott and Franz's view on this, that some of the things that we demanded early on, you know, gradient hysteresis, you know, all this sort of stuff helped clinical MRI, even if fMRI itself wasn't the main focus of the vendors. But I'd love to hear what they say. You know, I, uh, Peter, Peter and Ravi, I, you know, I think you both have a, a kernel of truth there that uh, fMRI has been a driving force, especially in the early days in a lot of the the development of fast imaging in general. Um, arguably, um, when GE partnered with ANMR and introduced the, uh, the resonant gradient system from ANMR onto one of their uh, uh, modified scanners, you know, that was our first effort to get really high-speed imaging. And it was, it was all the EPI that drove that, um, and fMRI. And, and then subsequent uh, developments of our own gradient systems and, and so forth, it's, it was really in the early days driven by the desire to be faster, better. Um, but then once we had the hardware, so once we had the fast hardware, then the question is, well, what else could we do with this? And, and so we started exploring other things and just started to realize how important it really was to the overall scanning um, of all kinds of applications to be able to go faster. So whether it was fast spin echo or um, very fast gradient echo imaging, um, these all benefited. And, and so questions of stability start to become more, more of an issue. Uh, it's just as much an issue with fast spin echo as it is with um, uh, fMRI, although fMRI is probably where you would see it first because when you get so when, you, when you're imaging and you get um, an artifact of some kind, it's so easy for people just to throw up their hands and say, oh, the patient's moving, or to throw up their hands and say, oh, it's eddy currents. Well, you know, it might not be either of those, but when you look at a clinical image and just see, um, uh, you know, artifacts, you may not be able to distinguish the root cause. Uh, whereas with fMRI, when you get fMRI instability and you're scanning a phantom, you know the scanning, the phantom is not moving. Um, you know there's an issue. You may not know the root cause of the issue, but you know the scanner is at fault. It's not an environment thing. It's not, well, sometimes it is environment actually, but it's, it's not, um, not the, the patient. It's not intrinsic to the exam. Um, so, so I think fMRI did help drive. I actually use fMRI um, quite a bit to to test scanner performance, because if I do a time series in fMRI on a, on a nice phantom, and I see some type of instability, whether it's a ghost fluctuation or, um, or um, apparent motion of B0 or whatever, um, that, that gives me indication of other system related things. So, so I do have to thank fMRI, although you know, I would say um, 
the requirements of clinical scanning um, quickly took over in driving the overall system performance. I wouldn't say fMRI has a dominant role uh, today or even in the last uh, 15 or 20 years um, since clinical MRI started to understand how important fast imaging was. Um, but it still is kind of a bellwether for, um, for stability, uh, things of that nature. And so it's still very important uh, to the clinical world as well. So from my perspective, I think we are, we are talking about two waves of, uh, let's say, technological improvements. The first one was EPI, and, and I think we developed our, our first EPIs kind of end of the 80s in, in Allingen, and we had one prototype running in the research lab, at, starting at two Tesla, because at that time, given by Richard Resetzian and, and, and the, ANM, the early ANMR guys, there was kind of the idea out there, you got to have good SNR, and you start at two Tesla, and you do cardiac imaging. And so we all started with cardiac imaging. And in order to do that, you had to be fast. You had to be run at a kilohertz or even faster. And that means you drive your gradient to something like 30 milliteslas per meter. And at, 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 at a kilohertz, you drive it at high voltage and all that stuff. So you get an idea what it means to go to the, the higher amplitudes. And that was in the end then realized in, in this first prototype, which we installed in in Boston at the, at the, at the Beth Israel with Bob Edelman. And he was a cardiovascular guy. And, and basically the idea was to run it for, to do cardiac imaging, uh, coronary artery imaging. They did some and other stuff, but then diffusion came up. And that was to me the main, the main game changer. Although at the same time, the first fMRI, let's say uh, experiments have been done. And Peter, I mean, you were there at the very early beginning and we, we've done on that um, prototype system also fMRI in, 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 in the research lab with, with Michael Staling, I recall he had yes. goggles on and doing visual, visual uh, stimuli and all that stuff. His breath holds. But nobody thought about that fMRI is the driver. And when, when we had the installation in Boston and we saw the, let's say, the outcome with respect to stroke, that was a game changer for yeah for us in the industry because people understood stroke is so, so often happened. And actually it happened in that time that my father had a stroke a few years later. So we had the first diffusion results in 92, 93. And I think 94, 95, my father had a stroke and I always wanted to get him into an MRI to a diffusion on it, but they didn't. And then they gave him a, a pacemaker. So that was out. And I was watching while he was getting his CT scan for, for his stroke in, in, in the village close by to Erlangen. And I was asking them, so when are you guys beginning? And they were already pulling him out. They were already pulling him out. So that was, that was a very reminding, uh, let, let's say, situation for me for the MR world. This is one of the challenges we have actually getting faster. But anyway, the stroke was the one and then it really took up with respect to fMRI when, 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 we, when I went to the MTH and we had this, this, this many EPI scanner there and we struggled as, 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 as Scott mentioned with the fMRI stability. This is a temporal stability. It's, I mean, 
it is hell when you're in such a lab and nothing is working. The fMRI stability is whatever, 5% or so. And you're dealing with one, one and a half percent signal changes from the bold effect. So that was the hell. And it took quite a while and elbow, elbow grease and, and baseball bats to get rid of it. And at the, at the MTH, we had this custom that Thomas Benner, uh, one guy in, in Greg Sorensen's lab, he, he put up this, this sequence where he was measuring every morning, the, uh, the, had a protocol running half an hour, stability test, and the results were emailed to me and to others. And every morning I didn't know where the stability is. And by that we basically, we finally catched it. It was RF coils and it was the RF uh, receive path, which needs a lot of time to stabilize. And so that was, then fMRI could really take off because you had the stability you needed, this half, half percent, this is what I recall, in, the, in that range was the temporal stability, not always, but most of the time. This is when fMRI took off. And that kind of, let's say, knowledge went into the, the next product, product lines. And before that, I mean, we had some other issues at the early beginning with this RF spiking and RF noise, which are just horrible. And I recall when we started at, at the BI, we had, we had such, such a situation. It was working in Erlangen. We brought it there, and it was spikes all over. I mean, you couldn't really do any imaging. And we had this one really funny situation when we brought the real RF experts in. Ralph Oppel is a guy, he's really a phenomenal RF engineer. And we were working for, for a full week on this body resonator and we couldn't get rid of it. And Ralph said, Franz, I'm not stupid, let's forget it. Let's go to Cape Cod. We went to Cape Cod <laughs> and it was raining cats and dog at that weekend. And when we came back, the humidity changed so severely that on Monday before Ralph was flying out, we were running the tests again. It was all gone, it was all gone. So that was a big learning curve for me and for us. So we put in some humidifier and then we understood what we need to do. And that there's a whole cascade of activities following up, cleaning up your scanner that you don't have this, uh, this uh, RF noise and so on. That all went into into the product and is basically standard in every product. Let me, let me ask, let me just quickly ask you though. Um, I mean, obviously, yeah. So it's clear from both Scott and you that, that, that making EPI happen is really, really up the stability of the system overall. And these are things that you'd see at EPI that you wouldn't necessarily see in your standard clinical uh, sequences. Yeah. Um, and that, that helped a lot, but why was it, I mean, was it, was uh, so were the powers that be at, at the upper levels of Siemens and GE sort of saying, um, you know, because you obviously spent a lot of time at MGH. I mean, that was a lot of investment from Siemens to to help them. Uh, and was it just cardiac imaging? It was it like for, for echoplanar imaging? Was it so? It was, or was it some thought that uh, I mean, even even by then, cardiac imaging was doing was was happening pretty well with with you know uh, various other you know, multi-shot techniques. Not yet, not yet really. I mean, there was still this hope that EPI could be the remedy for cardiac imaging. But when you start doing EPI at the heart, I mean, you know what susceptibility is and what signal loss okay. is. It's just horrible. Right. Yeah. You learn that very quickly. Right. You learn right. that very quickly. Interesting. So, okay. 
And so, all right, so that's, that's EPI. So what about, um, uh, and I've always, I would love to be on a, you know, fly to wall with the decision-making process for, you know, going to three Tesla um, uh, for both Siemens and GE, or even for that matter, going to seven Tesla. So what, I mean, seven Tesla, seems more risky, but three Tesla, you know, it was clear that you gained sensitivity, but, um, you know, the contrast might even flatten out a little bit in some regards. So, uh, so what was the impetus to, to, to invest in three Tesla? I mean, it clearly helps fMRI, um, but uh, what, what was the thought there? Why, why did people want to go to higher field? Scott, shall I, or? And, and why did it take yeah. them so long, really? <laughs> <laughs> so we, we invested, we invested relatively early in 3T, but it was a it was a small system. You know, it was it wasn't a head only system per se, but it was really for scanning the head. Um, it had a smaller gradient coil, uh, had a pretty good gradient capability, and imaging the head at 3T is relatively easy once you've got the basic system components there to do it, um, compared to imaging the body at 3T. And and I think we were. Um, I think nobody at that time was certain whether the incremental challenges of using 3T in the body would make a 3T body scanner worthwhile. Uh, and so when we, a um, little bit later, um, built a, a larger magnet uh, that would be suitable for a, a whole body gradient core, that is at the time it was a 55 centimeter system, um, we started looking at, um, at body imaging and realized, yeah, there's some challenges, particularly with dielectric effect and so forth, uh, from the RF point of view, but it actually works relatively well. You can make it work well. And so, um, so it was really the, the brain imaging that got us into that. But then once again, we started using the existing hardware, um, it became clear that it could have other application as well. And then once, once we had a, a good RF coils and so forth for body imaging, that just started to take off. I mean, on our ends, it started with a head-only system with the Allegra. And I think the very first one was actually at one and a half T and somebody it was sometimes, or somehow it got switched to 3T. And the first installation was in Mellingrad in St. Louis. And that was actually not really ready for EPI at all. It was just for, thought for, for plain neuro, neuro imaging, but not EPI. And when the first scanner came to, to Boston, to MTH, that was, that was the second one. There, I mean, Larry and, and these guys immediately started working on, on the EPI capabilities. This is where we ended up with all these uh, RF instabilities and all that stuff. But when that was settled, it was clear that Neuro is perfectly suited for, for 3T. Whole body. I mean, the experience we had in our lab with the four Tesla in the, in the recent corporate research facility showed that there is not, that's not an easy walk there. I mean, you saw the center brightening, even in the brain and in the body, you have the signal voids and all that stuff. And people just pulled away from there. But with the, with the head only, let's say, experience we got, the, let's say the, the demands on building a whole body system came more and more up. But Siemens actually was not really into it taking the risks. That's why we, we co collaborated with, with the Brook advice. And they, they released the first whole body scanners. And I recall it was kind of a big struggle to get the first 
whole body scanner to, to Boston because the shimming was not right, too much iron in there. At that time, we already did know the shim iron could have effect on the EBI uh, drift, temporal drift. Part of it you could compensate, others not if it's nonlinear and so on. So, but when, when this whole body scanner was up and in the environment at MGH, we were very lucky because, I mean, you turn around and Larry had a new coil and we had cardiac guys in there, Denise Hinton, and that was explored very quickly and they saw even there big advantages. And this is how it got into the whole body world. But sooner or later, they realized that doesn't come for a free lunch because you have to deal with this P1 inhomogeneities in the spine and all that stuff. That's a different world. Yeah, to, to, to temporarily situate this, you know, when I moved to Canada from Camille's lab in 94, and I wanted to go magnet shopping, um, you know, 3T or above, they were, you know, the only real options were NMR, because GE didn't want to jump in with both feet quite yet. Uh, there was this kind of Brooker hybrid, uh, again, because Siemens didn't want to jump in with, with both feet. Uh, and then there were uh, sort of the, what we ended up with, which was this Varian Siemens hybrid, because again, you know, nobody actually wanted to offer. So that was at four Tesla uh, and you could not buy a four Tesla scanner at the time. It simply did not exist. They were, you know, it's like the vendors had, had flirted with, um, with 3T. They weren't even sure about that. And they sure as heck weren't interested in going above that. So, you know, that wasn't that long ago when you think about it. And then GE went full tilt into 3T. Um, it took Siemens a while longer, actually, uh, to get there. Uh, and then, you know, 7T, of course, came around. Yeah, I mean, Camille is sometimes in his talks stating a statement of one of our CEOs, Herman Record. Oh, yes, Herman. I understand always. As long as I'm alive, there's no 3T from some Siemens or so. <laughs> I think he has not regretted it, but I think he understood that 3T is a very, very important uh, market. And I mm -hmm. think that was just one of his statements whenever, probably over but, a week or so. So it seems like the general thought was that, that you know, three Tesla, you know, neuro applications seem doable. And so just increase the field strength to, you know, increase sensitivity, increase resolution, uh, signal to noise, uh, whatever. And then, and then it, and then once they mastered that engineering, then then they went to the whole body in that regard. But and it seems like, but yeah. So 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 essentially, uh, if people felt that there was a a market for uh, that, obviously there is because it's it it, it helps everything with neural. <laughs> um, well, sorry to interrupt before it gets yeah. I think a key element in the decision to stick with 3T was musculoskeletal imaging, MSK. Okay. Like that's a clear when you have local situations, your knee, your shoulder, your hip, and so on, and, and, and your spine, mm -hmm. and you get just superb information of, of that uh, of the regions. And, that, that's, and that's only that's only discovered. So was that like basically did you have a, a prototype 3T just in the in, at Erlangen? that you were just sort of realizing that, or was it, you just, you realize that after the fact, after investing? I think uh, it, was, it was all after the fact, because 
at that time there were no dedicated coils. I mean, what you had were the, the whole body coil and some surface coils, but you could see that when you looked at the shoulder and so on, that it's, it, it has its benefit. And when you build, start building your own coils, suited for the specific region, then when it takes off, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the same at Philips, at GE, I mean, the, the MSK is, is big in, in 3T. Well, it's always been fascinating to me that, you know, there are, there's a long history of these specialized systems. Uh, so Scott knows the interventional systems in Toronto, for example. I remember going to Waukesha in, in the mid nineties and seeing a pretty spectacular standing MRI, low field standing MRI system that could do MSK as Franz was just mentioning, really beautiful. I think it was half Tesla system if I recall. Um, you know, the Allegra existed as a, as a head only scanner and so on. But time and time again, people have always reverted to whole body systems, I guess because they can do everything uh, at, a, at a suitable price point. But I'm, I'm always curious, and, and it comes back to head gradients as well. You know, why aren't there more head gradients available? You know, we use one at 70 um, and it's fantastic. It's much better than a body gradient, but we can't do anything else other than heads, of course. Right. So. So I, I would, you know, GE has had a, you know, a strong history of doing specialty systems over the years. Um, you know, the one you referenced, the 0.5T was a, a double donut interventional system. You could also do uh, standing applications in it if you wanted to and so forth. Um, you know, and there, there was a strong vision in that day for what, what you could do with a specialty system. And I, I think that that story played out again and again over over the years with other specialty systems. But then what it really comes back to is, um, you know, Robbie, I don't think it's that people want the whole body system because it can do everything per se, but rather they don't want the specialty system enough to make a viable market for mm -hmm. the specialty system. And so we were left, you know, as vendors we're left if we want to make a profit and not just be benevolent philanthropists to scientific investigators, we have to build the systems that we can sell. And so we, we have to do the best we can on a system that can do whole body, but then can also do very good MSK, can also do very good neuro, um, uh, very good fMRI and so forth. And that, that's really where it comes down to. So we could, you know, I could mention just a few others. We, uh, we also toyed with, um, a dedicated knee scanner that was actually a commercial product that um, was built by a company called ONI and then GE acquired the company. Um, but the market size was never very large for that type of system. And then there were other factors in the market such as um, a so-called certificate of need which is a governmental requirement that limits the number of scanners that can be purchased and so if you can only purchase one scanner, will you purchase one that can only do one thing? Or would you purchase one that can actually do everything? And so that also limited that, that particular scanner. Um, we also uh, dabbled in doing a neonatal scanner um, when uh, Richard Hausman was our, our CEO. Um, but it was the same story there. The, the actual expected market for that kind of application when it was a, a li very limited scanner to begin with, 
um, would not really support building uh, building it as a product. And and I know Peter, we're going to get to um, more discussion about what it takes to build products a, a little bit later because I think that's an important part of understanding why businesses have to make these decisions to sell hundreds of units rather than tens of units. Right, and, and it also seems like I mean that's a, a nice example of. Um, I mean, it seems like, right. I mean, GE did try, I mean, you could try to start a market and it's small, but then you, you especially with Interventional, I, I sort of remember the atmosphere in some sense that it seems like I felt that GE was making a stab at opening up a market uh, and growing a market and creating, mm -hmm. and, 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 um, and so I don't know, you know, whether. Yeah, I can speak to that, Peter, if I interrupt you for just a second yeah, there. Yeah, please, um, please, yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of enthusiasm there, um, but it was, you know, it, retrospectively and looking back at it, and, and to be fair, I was caught up in the enthusiasm too. As, as you know, Peter, I, I moved to Toronto, um, to uh, University of Toronto for, for a few years to do an interventional system there um, in that same day. But the enthusiasm was really driven by imaging people primarily. So Frank Yolez um, at Brigham, Yep. partnered with our global research center to build the first of those half Tesla double donut systems. And they were very invested in what it could do. And they, they put in the effort to make it work. And, and it did great things that the folks at um, uh, Brigham uh, used it clinically. They used it for surgeries. They, they showed what it could potentially do. But then when you try to do the same thing in a more mainstream clinical environment. For example, um, I was later from Toronto hired to um, Allegheny University of the Health Sciences or Allegheny General Hospital in Pittsburgh. They had purchased one of these double donut systems from GE to do brain surgery. Um, after I got there, unfortunately it was after I got there, um, I realized that nobody in the neurosurgery department actually wanted it. It was a top down driven effort by the institution uh, to try to um, up the ante on, on what they could do compared to their competitor across town, uh, which happened to be uh, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, UPMC. So because the surgeons didn't want it, it completely floundered. And um, in fact, I, you know, I think the one neurosurgeon that was willing to work on it might have done two procedures or something like that, and simple procedures at that. And, yeah. and then it was mothballed. So, you know, it, it was not the enthusiasm of the surgical community saying, we need this. Now, right. they would say we need the type of guidance that this theoretically could provide. But what they were not willing to give up in that case was the standard operating room environment that they need to do their work properly. Right. So rather than squishing into a 42 centimeter little space between the magnet and only have one assistant across from you, um, and a noisy environment and all that with special tools that don't work quite as well as your normal tools. They wanted to work outside the magnet in a normal operating room. And then, you know, as, as we all know, that then drove the development of the interventional market, but in a very different direction where scans are done in real magnets, surgery is done in a, a real surgical environment. Yeah. I think, yeah. One, you, know, you know, one thing which needs to be also put in context, the time we, Scott and I were talking about the developments happening, that was when, when business re-engineering was big. All the industry was, let's say, focusing on, on, their, on their core technologies and get rid of the 
at the peripheral cell. And that's why also why these, these, these extra things had no chance to survive. I mean, with the Allegro system, I, in total, we, we sold 50 of them. And that was a perfect fMRI scanner, really great fMRI scanner, stable. You could run it at slew rate uh, 400 with 40 millitesla. And it, it was well done. I mean, everybody working on the Allegra said it. They gave up on it because they would, they would need to put a lot of resources to that branch of product, almost the same amount uh, than you do for a new, a new, let's say, broader, broader product line. That's yeah. So the business re-engineering and the focus on, on, the, on the core is, was essential at that time. And it will still be even more these days. Yeah. So there's still, as long as the cost is high for these, these niche systems, then you, you need at least, uh, how many scanners? You need like probably at least in the thousands, uh, uh, a market like that to, to justify it, I guess, and tens of thousands, but. That, that's what you would like. Yes. You know, in, the, in that order, you need a steady stream. And if it's going to be a product, it has to be something that continues to sell um, until you come out with the next um, similar product beyond that. The product generations. So, so what about, okay. So, so, all right, that's, so then, so there was enough of a sense that three Tesla though, at least was, you know, there's a broad enough interest and, and, but mm -hmm. what about seven Tesla? Seven Tesla seemed a little bit more of a risk. I mean, because obviously it was a much more of an investment and, and uh, you know, certainly fMRI people are, are, you know, like, this is great, but um, but I remember talking to people at GE and Siemens uh, early on. And I think, it, um, you know, they were initially like, no, we're not going to do seven Tesla. Um, and then they back off and then, and then now seven Tesla is happening. Uh, and I think, at least with fMRI, there's about 80 systems. And, uh, and I don't know, uh, once again, it's sort of, it's, it's kind of, it's still in the early days and there's heavy investment. And, um, you know, is it, is the decision-making process still, uh, um, you know, uh, that in general with neuro and, and, and it will, it will uh, people will embrace it. I mean, it is a lot more expensive than a three Tesla um, or is, is, the, is there a concern? I mean, is it, you know, um, how, how is that thought? How was that decision made to do seven Tesla? Because certainly in my sense is that it wasn't like, oh, the, you know, there's fMRI people who would love it. Uh, it was more, you know, what, what can we, was there preliminary studies at seven Tesla? I mean, what is the clinical use now as your perception is uh, of seven Tesla? I know structurally susceptibility contrast is amazing. Um, and MS applications, there might be some, but I don't know. I, I actually don't know if seven Tesla, uh, you know, I, sometimes I, I'm happy that it's here and I, I just hope it keeps on going. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the funny thing about seven Tesla, I mean, we've been at it now for 12 or 13 years, starting again with a, a variant Siemens hybrid and progressing on through a, a full Siemens uh, system and then pushing them to upgrade that to their latest platform uh, so that we're contemporary with what they sell. And, and you know, we run 40 hours a week of which I would say 25 to 30 is anatomic imaging. Yeah. Clinicians, clinical research, but clinicians. Yeah. And the fMRI is, is, is the, you know, a quarter of the time, maybe. Yep. Which I would never have predicted. And, and I don't know whether the vendors would have predicted. 
So, uh, I gotta step back a little bit why 70 in the end happened in the big companies. I mean, it was really driven by the customers. They, their word had a lot of meaning. I mean, I recall when we got into MTH, the only way to get in was to commit to a 70. Otherwise, we would have not come in. But MGH is a unique customer. I mean, they're, they're, they have tons of money and then lots of resources. They do cutting edge research. But, but what about you know, your clinical market? <laughs> so, so Peter, I would say that right now, right now I would say every 70 is, is not an MGH necessarily, but every seven Tesla customer is a unique, you know, it's in yeah. that upper tier. You know, it's not a standard clinical um, customer, as it were. You know, there's special reasons why they're purchasing them, and it's not because they need another scanner in their fleet to do more clinical scanning. Yeah, but is that is that good enough to sustain it? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I, I would I would agree with um, Franz from the point of view that 7T has really been driven by the academic community and the researchers, and it's really the the response of the vendors. Um, Siemens, Philips, GE, that that's an important community to serve. And, and we need the community as partners in the development of MRI. And so not just the development of 7T MRI, but the relationships that we have more broadly when we work with an institution, whether it's on 7T or 3T or, or whatever, um, you know, being, being able to, um, for example, when, when we had our seven Tesla at the NIH, being able to come in and work with, uh, with Jeff Dunn and Peter Van Gelderen and others um, in the, um, you know, the tweaking and trying to get that system up and running the way it should, um, that was important to us. Uh, we learned a lot from it. I think it helped advance the field. Um, but then unfortunately, uh, you know, with uh, other priorities, GE had to step back a little bit from 70 for a few years um, GE's back now with a, a new product. It's actually FDA cleared um, for seven Tesla. So, so it's been a little bit of an on again, off again uh, with at least the company I worked for. Um, but there's always been the recognition that 70 is important because the very high end users want 70 and, they, and they, they're finding great things to do with it. Whether it will support an ongoing Clinical market, I, I have my doubts just because of the, the cost. You could buy it roughly three, um, maybe more, three Tesla systems for the price of 170. Um, and that's even without siding costs. Um, but, you know, I, I won't say never. You know, I say, never say never because you'll be proved wrong. Yeah. I mean, when we, when we look at the, the troubles seven Tesla has, it's something what you experience at 3T with this B1 inhomogeneities. I mean, you've got to fight the SAR. You have to have your sequences running that you are not tripping the SAR monitor. That's, 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 that's more or less an easier part, but fiddling around with a B1 inhomogeneity is, is key. And I think that's why 7 Tesla is so important to, to, to stay alive, even in the clinical world, because the the clinicians tell you, I, I can't live with the shading here at the, at the cerebellum because that's important to, for me as a neurologist to, to see what's going on there. So yeah. this is where you improve and things are happening really. Although it looks rather slow and I, I'm sure Ravi can, 
can tell even more about this, how slow PTX development is, but that's essential. It will, it will downstream to the 3T world. It already had with these two channel drives and all this stuff, but letting the, let's say that uh, the whole beast loose and run free that's coming into a different world. That's a, that's a yeah, that was a question I was, was going to ask both of you, and Scott kind of alluded to this a minute ago. I mean, you know, the analogy has often been made that seven Tesla is, is kind of like Formula One, and, and three Tesla is like going to the, you know, the local dealership and buying your, your nice Toyota or Mercedes or whatever. Um, and... I, I wonder for, for both of you whether, you know, indeed that is true and that lessons learned at 7T are slowly moving back down to, to improve the 3T product. I would say, uh, you know, certainly in my experience, there's been some, some of that that's happened. Um, some of the work I did um, actually at the NIH with um, oscillatory eddy currents, for example, or things that are called eddy currents, but are not really eddy currents, um, but have an oscillatory behavior. That, that was all from the seven Tesla initially, but then when I went back and looked at 3T, yeah, we've got it at 3T as well, it's just smaller. Um, but then we, you know, we learned how to deal with that. Um, but uh, partly because the 7T market has been so small, we don't have that many, um, at least for GE, we haven't had that many. I wouldn't say there's been a lot of the trickle down, but there certainly has been some. I mean, on the, on the technology side, definitely, when you have your gradients run in a 70, you know when they fail. And that oh, yeah. benefits the lower field, that's for sure. They yep. fail, that's it, they fail, they fail earlier, and you learn from it. This, whenever there's a broken gradient coming back, people are looking into it and try to improve it for the next generation. And that's, that's one of the downstreams. Mm -hmm. But I think that the true one is coming when this PTX is really taking off. I'm out of this, the, the, the professional world now for more than five years, and it's still not there. They have improved a lot. The whole process went, uh, went very smooth, and I just saw a paper on that. So with just 67 seconds extra, you can do full-fledged PTX examination with this unit. How is it called? Uh, uniform pulses, uh, or, or whatever, and these kind of new pulses you can you can apply. So that's that's coming, but it, there's still some reluctance, and it, it takes a while. Yeah, I think this is this has been slow. Uh, I mean, we we are still. I don't know. There must somewhere between eighty and one hundred seventy sites, or seventy and above sites in the world, and. I think we are still the only site that exclusively uses PTX. Wow. And I think part of this is, is um, well, it, it is workflow. So we've, we've spent a, a lot of effort so that an MR tech can run the scanner without you know, running MATLAB and, and porting stuff off and all this sort of stuff. And I think universal pulses, which you were just talking about are, are one very um, likely solution to this issue. But the other, of course, is the RF side and the SAR side mm -hmm. and, and having exquisitely good, confident SAR models so that your PTX SAR is known to the FDA's satisfaction. 
And uh, we invest enormous amounts of time in, in that. And I think it's probably quite variable across sites and across coils probably and, and failure modes of coils. And so that's probably the biggest obstacle, I think, for routine use. You need to get out of the, the comfort zone and start using it and get experience with it. I mean, when I left, we had the eight-channel transmit and, and 32 receive coil, and it is only used in a, in a few places. So still, so it's taking off. It's coming. Yeah. So, oh, they are there. Mm -hmm. so it's actually, I mean, kind of a little bit of what you were speaking to before, and also with the SAR issues too. It sort of suggests that, I mean, certainly the FDA and other approval uh, uh, organizations, and also. Uh, the clinical market is conservative. I mean, you know, you're SAR, I mean, SAR with, with PTX is, you know, you do have to have perfect models and, and it does vary from subject to subject and you, you know, hotspots are a thing to avoid and, and it's getting that right is, is really, really hard. <laughs> and I, yeah. And, but, but also what Scott was saying though, too, with um, aside from PTX, I mean, in general, uh, the whole clinical market uh, is kind of conservative. You have your surgeons, for instance, who, who don't really want something that they think could help them because they're just used to what they're doing. And that's sort of in MRR as well. I mean, you have, uh, you know, uh, we still, even when we do clinical scans, uh, radiologists, you know, they, they pause a little bit before they're given a seven Tesla scan, even though it's better because they're not used to it. You know, it's, uh, um, so it's a sort of a tough market to, to, to crack and it's a very slow attrition in that regard. Yeah, there's definitely a learning curve. Um, anytime you introduce something new, whether it's a, and we had that when we introduced 3T, contrast was a little bit different. Um, in fact, we had that when we introduced fast spin echo because the contrast in fast spin echo was also different than the, the standard, very slow spin echo that people were used to. Um, but you know, once they saw that their scan was four minutes instead of 18, they, they kind of got over that. Um, yeah. So, so I think there's definitely a learning curve. If, if um, 7T is going to become more clinically relevant, um, you know, I think the cost has to come down for one. Um, and people have to learn, you know, what are the differences in contrast? You know, we, I, as you pointed out, Peter, you get much more susceptibility related contrast, gray white differentiation and so forth in 7T. How does that help me? Or, or could that even be a, a problem in some cases where it might mask something? Um, people have to learn those things, and that, that, that does take a while. Yeah, yeah. You know, just one brief thing about EPI and 17. I mean, I think that went rather very easy, CT to 17. Shim was surprisingly good at 17. Down your echo time from 30 to 20, and there you are. If you have enough gradients and fast enough gradients, then, then you do what, what you're used to and, and to your benefits. So that yes, was, that was easier. Yeah, I think it was much easier actually compared to FSC, space, TSC, whatever you want to call it. Um, and any of those SAR intensive sequences, um, you know, eddy currents are eddy currents, and you know, there are some field oscillatory components that vary, but generally speaking, we understand them quite well uh, and the cross terms. But the the SAR issues and, and the phase trajectory issues and, and so on at seven Tesla, 
I think are still a, a, a bugaboo. You know, we're, we're just at the point where we think by loading, you know, 256 different refocusing pulses for our space sequence that we can make a nice space sequence. Um, but that, that is, that's a long time coming. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so that, that sort of leads, um, I just, uh, yeah, there's so much we can talk about here. <laughs> I'm realizing we're not gonna get to everything, but that's okay. Um, but that does lead me to the question of uh, product development uh, and, and trying to leverage more of the community. See, it seems like, I mean, you've been talking about a lot of the product development going on uh, uh, and also, you know, leading into fMRI, for instance, uh, a lot of is go, it goes on with the scientists at GE or at, at, at Siemens. And also certainly a lot of pulse sequences trickle up from universities uh, or, or researchers who have close relationships, research agreements with, with the company. But it seems that there's other potential models that, that might uh, help catalyze. I mean, so, so for instance, just as a mental exercise, just let's say, you know, in fMRI, we find, um, you know, this amazing biomarker in fMRI and, and it just works and it's FDA approved. Uh, so how does, I mean, right now the model is that, that maybe you sell the license for the processing to one of the vendors and they incorporate it into their system, uh, which is good, which is certainly one way of doing it. Uh, it also seems though that there's a lot of opportunity uh, for having, you know, I mean, obviously there's a lot of third-party vendors who try to sort of latch onto the system in some way. I mean, there's a lot of things, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of sort of push to sort of have things like Gadgetron that pipes data off the scanner and reconstructs. And, and actually I remember a long time ago, 20 years ago, maybe 30, uh, there was this SMS system that just used the gradients and it was a separate console that in which you could pulse program on that and sort of bypass everything. Uh, it seems that, that uh, so if you had this killer biomarker, I mean, one, one market, and, and obviously now this is happening more with this, this, the vendors. I was just told by Sean Merritt, who who's a, works in my group, who seems like he knows everything about <laughs> the latest stuff going on, that you know, it's more becoming cloud-based uh, in some sense. So like, a lot of the processing is done cloud-based. So you can imagine if you had a biomarker, big question, the big problem with fMRI right now, uh, clinical applications, obviously there's no sensitive biomarker that's out there yet. Uh, at least uh, that I know of. Um, but another problem is that it's a whole different beast. You know, it's not like you're just bringing scanners images up and looking at them. Uh, you have to do pretty sophisticated pulse pro, you know, uh, post-processing. Uh, offline has to, you know, come on in a, in a way that is immediately digestible by, by a technologist or, or radiologist or whatever. Uh, and so that whole suite uh, needs to sort of be built uh, in some way uh, to be clinically useful. Because if you had this biomarker, then how could it be marketed without something? So some people are saying, oh, well, let's just have pipe the data off, goes up the cloud, you know, does, does whatever processing necessary and sends the images back down. I don't know what your thoughts are on, you know, I thought about this a lot. I mean, a lot of radiologists uh, or, or clinicians who I talk about, talk to about fMRI, they're like, well, we would, we would try fMRI uh, and this is sort of an example. You, you put something out there and you let them try it and then things, good things happen. And they would try fMRI if, they, if it were easy, you know, if it were easy to do or they could just press a button and, and, and process data comes up. But um, I think that's what's really, that's a big thing that's holding fMRI back in some regard. 
because it's it's totally different processing than your standard MR uh, processing. And I, I don't know if you had any thoughts about potential solutions to that. And also, obviously, if you had if you had a an, a third party system, you don't even have to have a third party system. Let's say Siemens came up with a system. Uh, you know, it could run. You could run it something like. Uh, you know, like a like a Apple App Store where people come up with their processing apps, they put them there. Some are labeled FDA approved, some are labeled research, and uh, and it's all everything happens in the cloud potentially, and and that might help catalyze the dissemination of research and methods. I'm not even talking about pulse sequences now, since that's a, another problem. But um, uh, but just I worry a little bit about you know mechanisms for uh, 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 leveraging all the potential out there of the research, um, not only in pulse programming, but in processing that's not being leveraged yet um, because there's no setup that, al that allows this. I think it's, it's actually happening. I mean, okay. I'm, I'm out of that world for quite a while now, for five years. Scott is not that long ago out there. But anyway, what I understand is, at least from the company I was working with, they have an environment in place, either in the making or already out there, which is called TeamPlay. And the idea basically is that you can insert your own applications. You can kind of use um, a technology flywheel, the guys in Minneapolis, or whom I work with partly, their, their technology to bring the data from one scanner to another or to, to, to one of these applications. And these apps, basically, Siemens is providing an environment for, for hosting this app and they take a share of it. So that's, that's typically the, the, uh, the, Apple, the Apple approach. So this is happening. I don't know how often it is used, but that's, that's the environment which is there. Okay, what's and that called again? Team play? Team play. Okay. Team play. So this is not MR only, it is over the whole platform, all the imaging devices the, the, that company uh, is providing. I have, honestly, I have no idea what, what the current status is. I, I hear about them since three, four years. And, and I know that Flywheel is integrating the, let's say the, the sharing platform, the pulling the data from one side to the other. And especially with, with AI and machine learning, this is becoming very yeah. interesting because there are so many data sitting somewhere and somebody have the idea there is someone who has the idea I can do I, let, let me have a look at this with, with that algorithm over so that platform is existing and, and uh, or in in the making and it's that's that's the way probably the way to go uh, yeah okay share with it and then and then if people put their 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 processing methods on that um, can it be disseminated? I mean, so I, I guess obviously people who develop these things want to patent them and they want to hold on to the patent and then make their own profit from these. <laughs> How does that work? When it, when it goes like like you do with an with an app on 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 your on your iPhone or whatever, then you own it and you you give a you give a, a third or whatever to. To, to the host, that's yep. that's how it is. Yep. The, the host doesn't need to care about your FDA release and all that stuff. Okay. okay. When you take a license, that's a different world. You have to put it into your software. And I think Scott knows more than I do about that. 
and all the all the efforts to keep it up and running and get the 510k through and all that stuff. So with this app app hosting, that that's kind of very very interesting way to go. And I think in some ways this is the easier thing. You know, if if you have an app that all it needs is DICOMs as inputs, yeah. You know, that, that becomes easy. You know, the vendors, the primary vendors can, can provide tools. The, you know, third-party vendors can do that. Anybody can do that. It's when you want to fiddle with the incoming data stream uh, on the Mars computer in the Siemens case or, or in the equivalent in, in GE or Philips, um, that's when life becomes a whole lot more difficult because you're dealing with, I mean, it's now, now it's like pulse sequences, right? It's all proprietary. And uh, you develop a tool for some incoming data, compressed data stream and let's say multi-echo, multi-band fMRI and, and somebody else who uses a different vendor. I mean, they have no chance of ever being able to use that because the data stream is different. The, the locks are different. Everything is different. And, and that's, of course, where you and I do the innovation mostly. It's, it's, there's, there's an army of people who are analyzing DICOMs um, in AI and in computational neuroscience in, in statistics uh, without any real knowledge of, of where that data comes from. And, you know, it could be radio astronomy data, it could be stock market data, or it could be fMRI data. They actually don't care. Uh, but, you know, one step closer to the instrument, I think, is where we really have problems in, in dissemination and integration between vendors. Yeah, I think this Gatra drone is what I heard. I was just talking to one of the guys there. I mean, they have it in the Siemens world. They have it as a VIP. So basically, you can grab the raw data, pipe it out to a recon, and then when you have the data reconstructed, pipe it into the DICOM database on the scanner. So that's the end. Yeah, which is exactly what we do. Yeah. A guy like, like Anders Steele, who, who works and still works a lot on, on the West Coast with, with the GE fellows, with his NeuroQuant, that's basically you get the DICOMs in, you do some number crunching and, and spit out some structured report or some result images. It looks easy, but is the market that big? I, I wish him that, but it's when you have to pay for that's a different story. And that's typically what's happening. And the integration into a scanner, you have way more leverage to squeeze an application in or out. But when you have to pay for a subscription fee or so. Mm -hmm. that, you know. Yeah, I, I was um, actually going to comment, Ravi, on one of your um, comments. Um, I would... Um, caution maybe insert air quotes around the word easy that you used a few minutes ago um, the context being you know software or, or you know uh, analyzing images um, after they're taken from the scanner and so forth and conceptually it is easy I, I agree with you that uh, from a concept point of view and in a prototype uh, version in a research lab these things are, are relatively easy um, certainly easy to conceive uh, not that difficult to build, uh, to write the code and so forth. But, you know, we're, we're dealing with clinical imaging, not just, um, not just dealing with the uh, fMRI research community, but when you're dealing with clinical imaging, uh, every country or virtually every country in the world has some, some governing regulatory body for um, medical devices, whether it's Health Canada, 
um, or the FDA in the US or EU regulations and so forth. And so creating a um, regulatory approved product that does anything is a huge process. Uh, there's, there's documentation requirements, there's a quality management system requirement, there's different steps of development that need to be taken. There's uh, complaint handling, there's tracking of, of uh, ev virtually everything. And, and so it's, you know, I, I use the phrase, it's an order of magnitude more difficult than creating the prototype. It's probably worse than that, frankly. Um, but, but that's what has to be done. And it's not saying it can't be done. There are third parties that have gone through all the different FDA steps and created FDA cleared uh, post-processing things that happen in the cloud um, or happen by putting uh, DICOM images on their, their specific server or whatever. Uh, and so it can be done, but it's not easy. And, and there's a big hurdle to that. Um, oh, I think we're familiar with that from the RF coil side. Uh, yes. You know, even before you get to that point, you know, there are, you know, dozens of papers, for example, that say, you know, resting state network X is altered in disease Y. Mm -hmm. And yep. you know, this is very robust and we can do it on a single subject in our lab. And yet none of that is actually diagnostically used anywhere. I mean, the idea that I mean, it's attractive, the idea that you could push a button and it says COVID yes or COVID no, um, or, you know, schizophrenia or frontotemporal dementia. But there is no button you can actually push and there is no right. app you can use that so, will so do that. Getting, getting things into more cloud-based systems, if we just ignore the regulatory aspects for now, because that, that can be dealt with if there's enough of a demand in a market. Um, getting cloud-based systems, as, as everybody is aware, requires a lot of infrastructure. So if you're transferring gigabytes of fMRI data, that's a different infrastructure requirement than a dial-up modem, for example. Um, and there's also organization and lo logistics. So there's, there's IT departments that won't let image data out of their institutions, for example. And you know, we don't have any control over that. The radiology departments sometimes don't have any control over that. There's also, as um, I think Franz, you might've pointed out the billing questions and, and who's going to pay for the service. If, if nobody will pay, if insurance companies, if Medicare um, won't pay for a given diagnostic uh, test of some kind, then there will not be a clinical market for it unless it's so compelling that people do it anyway, and either the institution eats the cost, or they find a way to, to um, you know, get it uh, in under some other exam. So all these factors uh, become at play there, and uh, what it really points to is the need to get a strong user demand and, and market demand for a particular application. Let's say your resting state uh, fMRI. Um, uh, certain networks, for example, being diagnostic of a particular condition. If there are enough neurologists or, or uh, enough psychologists or whoever is the, uh, the clinician in charge who want that and are willing to make a push for it so that it uh, is able to affect the sale of either that application, possibly in a third, third party cloud sense, or to get these uh, applications on GE or Siemens or Philips scanners, um, then it certainly can happen, but there certainly has to be a strong push. What we've seen in the past with a lot of these is that you'll get a very strong advocacy 
Um, the interventional is a good example. Without Frank Yulez, GE never would have built that interventional magnet. Uh, Frank Yulez was a visionary and he saw the potential of um, MR as a tool to help guide interventions. Without that type of visionary and voice, um, together with somebody on the vendor side, whether it's you know one of the big players or even a smaller player, um, you know I think there's a big roadblock. But with those things, it's all possible. Absolutely. You know, let me let me ask you one question. You guys at NIH, do you have a cloud application where the data from your scanner? gets out of the NIH world into the Google, Amazon, or? Yeah, no, um, as a matter of fact, we have to overcome some of that right now. Uh, we just got this hyperfine system and uh, it's like this extreme low field system. And, and we actually have, we, we have huge firewalls uh, and the all hyperfine does all the recon in, in the cloud. Uh, and yeah, yeah, they have to, I mean, the images, I think they do some, some machine learning sort of reconstruction on the images. Um, and so we, we, we we're still working through that to, to figure out how to how to do that properly. But I mean, it seems yeah, that's that's a long way from when I used to log in and run your scanners from from Waukesha. That's right. Anything <laughs> was possible. Yeah, it's it's strange because it's but you have these two trends. One is people are getting more and more conservative, and it's ratcheting up to everyone's careful. But at the same time, you, there's this explosion where the data wants to be free and wants to be shared and. And, and yeah. so there's this weird tension. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, hospital-based systems have all, I mean, hospital IT is is horrible. You know, it's, it's all, you know, under the guise of HIPAA or equivalent kinds of things. And they don't necessarily want to share, you know, we've had enough fights with just getting, you know, magnet or service monitoring, you know, ethernet jacks on a Brooker or Siemens or GE system. Uh, actually through the firewall, <laughs> but, you know, where there's nothing to do with privacy, they just don't want to do it. Um, yeah. So can you imagine shipping the full day's worth of scans from, from all your scanners uh, off to some, you know, cloud? I mean, there's physical facility somewhere um, that, you know, that's, that's a whole mindset change, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think though with the, I mean, I feel like it's inevitable. I think that those are just problems of security that you can, you know, you can encrypt things and do whatever. Um, but it seems like it's inevitable. And that sort of leads to the next thing where, where it seems like a trend, a major trend, obviously. I mean, well, well, before I go to that really quickly, it seems like Scott was talking about a clinical need. My feeling is that with fMRI, you can have one group or 10 groups sort of have this, this killer biomarker, but it's still not disseminated enough because there's no platform for your average, even F average fMRI user that can sort of let it spread. Um, and so it seems like there's, there needs to be some sort of platform that- I disagree, Peter. Okay. I was talking with, with Heiko Meyer. He's, he's in charge of the, of the neuro world uh, at the moment for, for quite a while now. And we were talking about, because you were asking, so what's, what's the, how, how, how often is fMRI installed? So he, we were just exchanging and came to the conclusion probably 30, 40% of all the 3T applications have fMRI. Okay. And I don't know what it, what's up with one and a half D. It, it's not fMRI, it's EPI, it's diffusion. And diffusion definitely is in almost every 3T application package. Mm -hmm. So it's not that you're, you're lacking, let's say, people who potentially are able to do that. Okay. It, 
I mean, the on, on our world, they have fully integrated a clinical, let's say, branch for pre-surgical planning. Okay. EI, fMRI, and, and diffusion. Yes. Uh, visualization tool, 3D neuro task cards, whatever it's called. So to visualize, there's a two more that needs to be instructed. Where are the fibers going around? Is it in the in the auditory cortex or in the visual cortex and with all these tasks related fMRI? That's all in there from the very early beginning from, let me say about 2000 something, three, four or something. Okay. All right. Well, it's, I'm... I'm has not made it to... Yeah, I think that's my feeling because I, I know of, you know, similar packages on, on G and Siemens for what, you know, seemingly, I mean, pre-surgical mapping was like supposed to be the first go-to thing for fMRI. And yet I actually don't think that, you know, it's kind of like spectroscopy. Everybody buys it and nobody uses it. <laughs> and, and the next thing, yeah. Yeah, it's always the next thing. It's a, it's the promising technique. If I read another grant that says spectroscopy is a promising technique, I'm going to put my fist through a screen because I've been doing this for 35 years. And I, I worry I about it. that. I, I worry, actually, I truly worry about fMRI in some sense because eventually the the funding for fMRI is going to dry up if if it does, if it never gets clinical traction, then you know people are going to start pulling back. Well, I think we do have the advantage that fMRI and, and the neuroscience that it allows is a well-funded domain. Yes. And as long as fMRI continues to give new insights into systems neuroscience and, and potentially, you know, even large-scale clinical populations, even if it's not diagnostic, uh, it will always find a niche. Not everything in this world has to be aimed at, at a clinical problem or a diagnostic problem. If that were the case, we would never fund astronomy, for example, right? That's so true. neuroscience stands on its own two feet as a, as a domain um, of actually doing work and, and learning about how the brain works. It's just how large is that? Right. And a big part of the funding still is sort of like the hope for clinical directions and things like that. But still, but I agree with you. I think it's, we don't have to worry yet at all. I mean, it's, it's great. It's robust. No, as long as people don't keep writing in their grants and making promises that they can't keep, I think we're okay. Learning about, you know, inner space, just as important as outer space, right? Yeah. It's okay. So, so I never even got to the, I mean, I, I think we got a sort of a sense of how the, the products are thought of and how it's formed and what the what the ecosystem of fMRI with that is. So I so I think I'm going to have to sort of lead towards the end of the of of the podcast and just ask sort of you know sort of open ended you know just a couple of general open ended questions. So what you know uh, what do you think uh, you know just in general? Um, how, I mean, where do you see? So where do all three of you see uh, MRI? in, you know, what will be the state of MRI in three years, I mean, or 10 years? How many will be there be, you know, will it be more AI based for everything? Will we even still have radiologists looking at scans? I mean, I think that someday that's gonna be a quaint idea that a person actually sets eyes on images. It'll just be processed and, and, and numbers will come out and that'll be it. Um, 
I think, you know, someday. And, and so, or where do you see it in 10 years in terms of the, the basic technology? Uh, you know, are, are we're running out of helium? Is it going to be superconductor breakthroughs, um, uh, cryogen breakthroughs, which we already have pretty much? Um, and uh, or, you know, what what do you think is going to happen? What And also, what's the state of what do you think the state of fMRI will be? I mean, I know that might be more of a question for Ravi, but uh, but still, I'm kind of curious what your thoughts on that are. Anyone can jump in. Uh, we, we love to prognosticate. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough, I mean, you know, right. I mean, I, I, I'll just, you know, you know, you see trends of some niche markets like the ultra low field that seems like it's getting a little bit of traction because it's so easy. You see, um, like we were talking about some of these cloud-based apps. Um, you see, uh, you know, I, I actually see pulse sequences going, you know, there's so many more of these fingerprint types, pulse sequences, and you know, you're, you're, you're speeding up not only acquisition, but the, 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 the information content uh, in, in the acquisition. So you, have, you, can, you can slice it and dice it many different ways and pull out all kinds of things quickly. Um, you know, there's, I sense that in the acquisition side, it's going that direction, you know, flex coils, uh, uh, but there might be some niche markets that might be exploited. Um, if the, obviously if the market's high enough and the cost is low enough. And well, I think, I mean, the interesting, you know, MR is always intrinsically a low SNR process. And, uh, you know, the ways around that are, you know, higher field, hyperpolarization, things like that. They all come at a financial cost. Um, and then there are, you know, the niche markets, you know, the interventional systems, but maybe more so now, ERs and, and neonatal units or something like that. Maybe, maybe there's a market, as long as the price point, you know, the hyper fine system is, uh, hypersense system is, uh, uh, you know, that's like an ultrasound machine in pricing. That's a big difference between any other small dedicated MR unit that I've ever seen in, in my lifetime. And so that means you can buy an MR for the price of an ultrasound machine. That's potentially a game changer. There's probably not a lot of profit in that. So that, that's a whole different scenario. The other question is whether you can do as much with it as you can with your high-end ultrasound. Exactly. And, and, and this is an open question. Uh, you know, there's a lot of voodoo uh, in these systems. I think Peter mentioned that there is proprietary processing that occurs in the cloud to generate an image that you would not think is otherwise generatable. <laughs> um, but it looks lovely. I mean, yeah. I, I, I'm a big fan of that system. And those are the kinds of systems that can go into a lot of areas of the world that can't afford the kinds of other things we're talking about. That's another thing, third world countries, you know, whatever. Um, it's it's an interesting interesting question because what it really says is what other um, technology developments have we witnessed that will enable us to do other things with the MR side of it and so in this case uh, what you're seeing almost certainly in their uh, cloud-based reconstruction is the application of deep learning methods or other AI related methods that are able to better characterize noise versus image we um, at GE we uh, we developed. Um, a deep learning reconstruction. It's uh, my understanding is it's actually in product now that happened after I left. 
Um, I believe every other vendor is going to have AI-based reconstruction in their product, and it does make an incredible difference. It it it, um, it gives you a very significant SNR advantage over your other scans, which then leads you to the possibility: of, Well, could we do the low field scanner that last generation of straight FFT reconstructions would not have given you a good image if we use a different reconstruction? Are we constrained by Mr. Fourier in our reconstruction or not? And so, so I think uh, it does open new possibilities. And um, I think it could be uh, a real boon for taking MR where MR has never gone before because of the, the cost, the complexity of the magnet systems, whatever it is, uh, just by having these improved processing capabilities, extending what you can really get useful out of these scanners. Now, Peter, to get to one of your questions just real quickly, will we need a radiologist? I think the answer is yes. Yeah, I um, think we'll still, at some point, right, you have to have a decision. Yeah, no, I mean, IBM tried this uh, Watson thing, I think, to, yep. to do healthcare. I, I haven't heard anything about it in, in five to 10 years because it, in my understanding, it was a total failure. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if you think about trying to send a computer to med school, right. uh, that's really what you're doing. And giving it the capability that a trained radiologist has, I, 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 again, I won't say never, but it's going to be an awful long time before the AI is actually reading exams, except for very specific indications. Like if you're trying to count MS plaques, if right. you're trying to uh, you know, do other very specific tasks, then yeah, the AI is going to be a great assistant. So it can augment, obviously. Yeah, it can, yep. a huge augment. Yeah. Yeah, and and similarly for fMRI analysis, it certainly could be a benefit there. Although how you get there with the fMRI analysis is a little bit trickier because you need to know what you're doing a little more than some of the black box approaches give you. Yeah. So from my point of view, I'm still kind of stucking more in the conventional MR world. <laughs> Is still a cylindrical bore and a patient table and stuff comes in. Uh, I think what's what got to be changing in the next 10, 20 years is speed. Speed, yeah. Imaging speed. Mm -hmm. And I, I brought that up with my father's stroke when I saw this CT scan. I really thought, wait, when are you guys start, guys start with a scan? It was already over. They pulled him out. That's how fast CT is. Yeah. And this is that's where MR has to has to aim for. Yeah, I totally agree. But with it was very interesting what what was considered acceptable, of course, because you know the first time I went into a scanner was the mid '80s, early mid '80s, I guess. Um, it was a 0.15 T picker, and the spinecho sequence took 40 minutes. And that was considered an acceptable time to, to get a single scan. Now, if your FSE takes four minutes, you know, that's considered too long. Yeah. yeah well, it should be uh, exploratory surgery back at the day. Yeah. So that's one part. I mean, it got to be faster. And I mean, there are several approaches from, from different uh, vendors side with, uh, let's say, five minutes neuro protocols or whatever. And with compressed sensing and multiband and simultaneous multi-slice and so on, we are, we, are, we are getting there. The other thing I see is, and this is why the high-end stuff never ends, is getting more quantitative. And I mean, one way quanti to get quantitative information is fingerprinting. 
but hey, when you you think you know where you are, I think you are on a lost position because you gotta know your scanner. You gotta know your mm-hmm. infidelity of your scanner very well, and that's what I what I understood talking to Josef Pfeiffer and some other guys who who did this fingerprinting in the in the on the Siemens scanner and and, and implemented it there. It's not as easier to think you, you understand your world very well you either do it you do your hardware very perfectly or you understand it and try to compensate as best as you can and and one more thing i want to say i think is getting new contrast like this cest imaging chemical exchange saturation mm-hmm. for ultra high field imaging to me i mean this is when i left that world there was the most eye opener and that has Big potential. There's no free lunch. I mean, it's even more complicated than fMRI, but that's that's a truly opener for for the in the neuro world. So I'm I'm very hopeful that lots of stuff come. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, CEST is is probably the spectros. It is the spectroscopy that will actually work. And I think you know, there's evidence in tumors and a number of areas that this is. Really quickly, uh, for the uh, anticipating the users won't uh, know what CEST is. So can somebody uh, just say quickly what, what CEST is, um, just to clarify. Yeah, so this is a chemical exchange saturation transfer. It is essentially the idea of, of doing magnetization transfer at multiple frequencies away from water, which will allow you to trace out uh, essentially an absorption and exchange spectrum. And this is modified by pH, it's modified by various moieties on proteins, it's modified by lipid mobilities and things like that. So this is a, a technique that with very high proton sensitivity, unlike you know, the you know, micromolar and millimolar kinds of things we do in traditional spectroscopy, actually gives us you know, a pretty good idea of, of what's going on. It builds on the original mag transfer work of Henkelman, Stanish, people like that, uh, you know, 30 plus years ago. But coming back to where fMRI might be perhaps in, in 10 years, that, that's a really tough question. Uh, I will make one prediction. I, I think it'll still be bold based primarily. You know, we are, I I think I'm within a couple of months of my first fMRI experiment that I did, and that was 30 years ago. And while, you know, all kinds of exciting techniques like VASO and and all the ASL techniques, uh, ASL being, you know, almost as old as fMRI really, uh, if not older, um, nothing has usurped T2 star weighted or T2 weighted or some hybrid of that um, mapping. Uh, and, and the problem is that, that the, and Peter, you've done calculations on this, the, the magnetic fields to measure them directly, we're still five, six orders of magnitude from being able to measure those. Maybe we'll get there with you know some fancy new technique that is yet undiscovered, but I think I'm safe in saying that bold will dominate fMRI applications for the next decade. Yeah, that sensitivity makes a huge difference in everything. Yeah, anytime you can image water, so CEST or fMRI or anything else, you're ahead of the game. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What's your your estimate on resting state fMRI? I mean, 
that seemed so easy. You just, whenever you have a neuro patient in there, let it run for a few minutes without any task and you get everything out. Is there any hope on that? Well, Robbie, um, I have my opinion. I, I think resting state has its place. I have its um, place, yeah. But it's not fast necessarily. I mean, all evidence would suggest that if you want good resting state data, you, you need 10, 15 minutes at a minimum. Um, in a hospital, is a clinical practice going to devote that kind of time to this? Yeah. So it's still 10, 15 minutes? Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, you can go down to five maybe, but this still gets a little bit noisy. But but also, I think there's other techniques like, you know, like I've been working on sort of like looking at, um, you know, just movie watching, like naturalistic stimuli, sort of watching a movie. It turns out you can pull out everything that you could with resting state. And on top of that, you have a task that you can, you know, look at cross subject correlations and pull I out more information. That's more powerful. So I call that driven state for lack of a better word, because you're driving all these orthogonal things in the brain, essentially. And then the genius is in how do you extract that? How do you code what you're watching or, or doing? Right. I mean, they can do things with their hands as well, uh, play video games, drive Formula One cars, whatever. Um, so we're working on that. I mean, I think that might that might ultimately surpass that from a resting state for a lot of things. I, I believe so. Okay. Oh, man. Well, this went a little bit longer than I expected, but all in a good way. This is awesome. Um, you know, there's so many things we even didn't get to. Who knows? We might have another podcast. But um, uh, uh, so... So if there's, is there anything else any of you want to want to mention at all um, that you feel that you want to say or anything like that? Uh, we covered a lot of ground. Well, that the, uh, you know, the adventuresome corporate types like Scott and friends continue to be replenished in their companies because I think where we are is very much due to, to both of them and, and teams that they worked with over decades and, and I hope we don't lose that. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think you'll use it. I'll, I'll just comment. Um, you know, Fr Franz and I both got into MR in a very special time. And, and you know, in effect, both of us are generalists um, with some specialist uh, capabilities in certain areas. Uh, what you won't find nowadays commonly is the generalist because people specialize very early because the general stuff is all known, more or less. Um, the only difficulty that gives you... Um, and, and companies find a way to overcome it, is that where you cross some of the specialization boundaries and things interact, uh, things can get a little confusing. But um, I, I'm very bullish on MR development, both in the academic community, and I, you know, I have very good confidence that it will continue to be developed very well and supported in industry as well. Yeah, I have to, I, yeah, Franz. Yeah. I think that's my, my view also, and I mean, especially when you, when your company still allows to, let's say, play in niches, like I wouldn't call it seven tier niche, but it was, and you, you're able to build up your, your ecosystem, then you get the right guys. And this is that's kind of fanning out into the rest of the, the, uh, the, the, the company. And that's at least what I saw in the seven T world. There are guys coming up. I'm sure, Ravi, you know, Rene, Thomas, Spenner, and these people. Yeah, absolutely. And, Carsten Wicklow, Andreas Bottas. So these are these generalists which can go into very deep, different levels. And that's, that's they are not too often there, but they are still there, which is good. Mm -hmm. And they gotta be there, they gotta be there. 
Yeah, no, actually, and also I'd, I'd just like to once again reemphasize what Robbie said as far as the, the both of you, Scott and Franz, um, you know, you were, you were truly unique uh, in your respective companies as far as leading the way um, for, for so many things that sort of helped the clinical applications, but also, uh, also fMRI. I mean, there's, I just want to make sure that anyone listening to this with, who does fMRI is that these are the guys that thank. <laughs> That's right. Um, we would not be doing fMRI without these people and their voices in the companies that they work for. Exactly. Well, th thank you. Thank you for the very kind words. Peter, I guess I'll sign off on your thesis now. <laughs> <laughs> finally, finally. <laughs> and th thank you, Bobby, for kicking, kicking the butt, mine included. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very important. <laughs> All right, well, with that, um, once again, I'd like to thank all of you. This was a lot of time that you took out of your day and I, I really, really appreciate it. And um, I look forward to, you know, maybe uh, even potentially having other discussions uh, sometime in the future. So thanks again.